The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Connie Zweig, is a psychotherapist, former executive editor at Jeremy P. Tarcher Publishing, a columnist for Esquire Magazine, and a contributor to the LA Times. The author and co-author of several books on the psychology of the shadow, her newest book is The Inner Work of Age. Shifting from role to soul. Connie Zweig, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Hi, Rami. Glad to be here. Happy to have you here. This book is so rich with insights and exercises, and it's, it's really phenomenal. And I want to read you something from the very beginning of the book as a way of jumping into the conversation about the inner work of age. Okay. And see where this takes us. So if I've got it right, you define aging as, and here's the quote, the universal inner journey of human development or expanded awareness, which includes the extraordinary potentiality of this state of life, the unfolding of our psychological and spiritual authenticity and authority, and even the unfolding of advanced stages of human development, which are described in every religious and spiritual tradition as the purpose of life. So there is so much to unpack there, but I want to start at the end with this notion of purpose of life and associating that with the unfolding of advanced stages of human development. What do you have in mind regarding the stages that we can achieve as we age? Well, I didn't intend that to be a definition of aging. I think it's, <laughs> a, it's a definition of the potential. Okay. Of the potential for this stage of life. And the perennial traditions all teach that it's the purpose of this stage of life, not all of life perhaps, but of this stage. And so what I mean by that is that in all of the mystical streams of the religious traditions, there is wisdom and there are practices about how to go beyond the ego and drop our roles and deepen or expand our identity to our essential spiritual nature. And that's kind of a general statement of the evolution of consciousness, but there are now maps to move beyond that initial recognition into higher and higher stages. So 
the book is not rooted in one single tradition. It has sources and interviews, people with, from many different traditions. And I do use Ken Wilber's integral stages as my map for higher levels of consciousness. So this is what many people, when they hear this, think it's impossible for them. It's rarefied, it's aspirational. But what I'm suggesting is that if we learn how to turn within in later life and actually drop our identification with our roles and our masks, then something can unfold. Something else has the opportunity to unfold. And with practices of shadow work to clear the unconscious obstacles and contemplative practice, we can begin to experience some of these things. So it sounds like, and I'm going to make it very simple and hopefully not simplistic, that you know, as we drop our masks, uh, we're dropping our persona, our, our, our sense of maybe even dropping our ego, though that's problematic, because then the question is, who's dropping the ego? But at some point, it sounds like, and maybe I'm just projecting because this is how I understand things. When we are moving through higher levels of consciousness, we're awakening to the fact that we are, for lack of a better word at the moment, that we are God, we are the universe, we are Tao, we are Brahma, that, that we are the absolute, as well as the relative self, not denying that we have a separate self, but that ultimately that isn't the truest nature of who we are, that we really are a manifesting of the divine. And that as we enter into this stage of aging, that is possible for us. Am I on the right track? You know, during our midlife period of, of life, we're all empire building, right? We're building families and careers and our ego development is peaking. And then as those responsibilities begin to fall away, whether it's in our 50s or 60s, 70s or 80s, and there's a shift in the structure of our days and the demands and the stress on us, most people get disoriented. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what's meaningful to them anymore. And I noticed as I was in my late 60s that that started to happen to me, even though I've been doing spiritual practice and psychological work for 50 years. So I realized that there was a late life identity crisis that nobody was talking about. That once again, people start to ask the basic timeless question, who am I? And so the reason I wrote the book was to help people reorient toward the inner world and give them the practices and the tools, not just for, you know, generic meditation, but how to use age as our curriculum, how to use retirement and illness and caregiving as our curriculum for expanding consciousness. So there are many, many meditation practices in the book, as well as shadow work practices, because what I discovered as I interviewed hundreds of people was these unconscious inner obstacles, such as denial, which I call the inner ageist, or 
identification with doing, which is, you know, epidemic because our culture is so workaholic. And that's, that's a shadow I call the driver or the doer. And so how do we work with these outworn identities in order to allow them to recede and kind of step into the unknown so that something new can emerge? That has to be very intimidating. I mean, first of all, the idea of stepping into the unknown, but also this idea having you know, gone through the life stage of, I think you said, building your, your empire. Mm-hmm. I think gone through that, having spent so much time and energy becoming somebody and then coming to a place where now that somebody's got to, I have to let that go. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that has got to be very, very frightening to, to lots of people. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, and here, and see what you think of this. My sense is that because it's so frightening, but at the same time so necessary, that lots of us will find ways to pretend to do this while at the same time reinforcing the, the ego, the, the sense of separate self. So we, we talk about, oh, I'm going to work on self-development, or I'm going to look towards self-realization, by which they don't mean self with a capital S, which is the intent of self-realization, but self with the lowercase s, the ego. I'm going to realize my true ego nature. I'm going to, I'm going to self-actualize, but again, using a lowercase s self. And that's just a way of keeping the ego in business. Is that... What do you think well, yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. If someone is saying to herself, look at me, I can sit for a whole hour now in meditation. Or look at me, I can do this yoga asana that I couldn't do last year. So the ego is capturing the spiritual world and using it for its own enhancement. I think there is also, at the same time, at least with the many, many people I interviewed, an intuitive sense that there was something more to life, that there was always something more that eluded them while they were hurried and busy and stressed out and raising families and making money. That, that during that stage of life, they weren't open to these other possibilities. And so what I'm saying is now is the time. Now is the time in midlife and beyond to find the mystical or spiritual teachings that speak to you, whatever your lineage, and find a practice that fits who you are now and see what that's like, just breath by breath. It's not scary if you just do it a bit at a time. It's not like you're going to jump into the deep end and suddenly become nobody. It's not going to happen. Rather, it's a rite of passage that I'm describing. And every rite has three steps. Letting go, stepping into liminality or the unknown, and then emerging, renewed. And, you know, mostly in the world of conscious aging, there's a lot of talk of becoming an elder. So the renewal and vitality is about becoming an elder. And 
what I'm trying to do is, is like deepen into what does that really mean? And what is a spiritual elder? Because people throw around the term wise elder. What does that really mean? And how do we actually become spiritual elders? How do we grandparent as a spiritual elder? How do we mentor as a spiritual elder? But also what I see in response to your question is millions and millions of people taking up encore careers, more doing, more volunteering, in part because of the fear of slowing down and the fear of looking within and what will they find? Yeah, nothing. That's and the, the fear, fear is. the fear is of feeling empty, finding right. the emptiness. Yeah. Yeah, not in the good sense of emptiness. Not with the, a capital E. Right, right, right. So, right. so there, so these internal obstacles are explored in the book, and each one has developmental tasks that go with it. So, if you're stuck in denial of age and worshiping youth then there are certain things that you need to overcome in order to be with the truth of what is. If you're stuck in the driver and kind of addicted to doing, then there are certain tasks to undergo in order to see if you're really a choice. Some people may go through this and choose to keep doing. That's fine. But if you're not actually choosing it, if you're just doing what you've always done because that's all you know and you're scared of anything else, then that's not aging consciously. I, I wonder if it's different in, let's say, traditional Indian, you know, Hindu culture, mm -hmm. uh, where there's a sense of four life stages. There's a student stage, and then after the student stage, you, you get you get married and you have a mortgage and a career and you know all of that. And then you hit, I don't know if you call it late middle life or early. Well, it's grandparenting, the forest dweller. Yeah, the, right, the forest dweller, where you just, okay, I'm done with that. And, I, and, and the tradition is to get a teacher mm -hmm. and to work on your spiritual uh, development. And then the fourth stage is what you're calling, I think, a wise elder, doing spiritual eldering or whatever the terms may be. At least in that context, the society supports you. I mean, there's limitations and all kinds of things, economic issues that are raised. But the society says, okay, if you can do that, that's what we think of as an ideal. Whereas in, in the West, or let's, you know, at least in the postmodern, you know, post-industrialized Western world, the idea of becoming a forest dweller mm -hmm. or devoting, you know, your, your 70s and beyond in some spiritual way that really takes you out of the earning dimension of life. When you no longer have to earn a living, you're just living. There's no support for that. There's like, whoa, what are you doing? I mean, it, so in India, there was a monastic tradition. So the fourth stage is becoming a monk, a renunciate called sannyasin. And those men and women would leave their families and all their possessions, and they would wander and live on alms because they were focused on spiritual practices. And as you say, the culture supported that. In the Christian tradition, there's also a monastic stream where people were supported by going into entering monasteries. Um, in Judaism, not so much. But in our time, 
There isn't a lot of support for that. However, I, this is how I see that, Rami. I see it symbolically. So there, when I interviewed Anna Douglas, who's a Buddhist teacher and one of the founders of Spirit Rock Meditation Center, um, and this was before the COVID pandemic, she said to me that baby boomers were just coming in droves to Spirit Rock to learn how to meditate because our generation is doing it differently. Instead of going into monasteries, we're, we're creating natural monasteries, internal monasteries. We're continuing to be householders, but we're doing serious spiritual practice. And maybe it's an hour a day, or like a friend of mine, he goes on retreats every few months. People structure it differently. So they integrate it into their lives rather than behaviorally sort of rejecting material life. And I think that the deeper meaning of that is that the intention of practice is not rejecting the world. It's non-attachment to the world. It's non-attachment or witnessing or, you know, spaciousness from our thoughts, from our compulsions, from our shadow issues, from our possessions. So for me, we just moved, my husband and I just did a major downsize from a big house to an apartment, which felt very good to me. All the letting go was just very liberating. But what I kept saying to myself was, I'm really downsizing my ego. There was a way that my ego was identified with that big, beautiful house in the forest. And that, that was a more important sort of practice for me than letting go of the stuff. So there are different ways to kind of frame this and look at the meanings of these myths and stories from other traditions and make them fit who we are now. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And yet at the same time, there, it seems to me to be something biological about it. So here's what I have in mind. My experience of aging into my 70s is, I, was, I don't know, I was going to say a gentle releasing, maybe not always that gentle, but a releasing of the very idea of having a separate self. You know, it's just less and less concrete to me. And mm -hmm. the older I get, I don't know if this makes any sense, but the older I get, the less of me there seems to be. And then the less of me there seems to be, the less there is for that me to do. And I find myself relishing and, and then being surprised by there's not a lot to do. There's the being is rich, but the doing is, is no longer the focus. And so it's not, it's not that I've lost the desire to live, only that I no longer feel, I guess, the need to earn my living by, by doing something. And, and I'm wondering if that's, and I, you probably really can't make a distinction here. It's all part of a spectrum. But rather than say, you know, this is psychological or this is spiritual, I have a sense that it's biological. This is what happens as I age into this stage. Is there a biological element to it? Um, I don't know. I know that there's a biological element to slowing but I don't know that there's a biological element to turning within. You've been doing 
spiritual practices daily for a long time. So you're not really a model for just looking at the biology alone, right? Because your practices are probably shaping a lot of this experience. They're coloring your inner world. I think the point that I'm trying to make is that whether we're doing or not doing, doing more or doing less, it's the state of mind in, or the level of awareness with which we do or don't do that matters now. So if we continue to do in a sort of midlife, heroic, striving, attached way, we're not really moving into elderhood. When we do as an elder, we do more, more like karma yoga, you know, less attachment to the outcome, more connection to the common good, more less with the ego's agenda, more with the universal interconnectedness in our awareness. So whether we're doing or not doing. So for me, it's not about moving from doing to being and stopping doing. It's more about how we do what we do, the state of mind in which we do it. And so my concern about all the people doing encore careers and more and more doing is that they're losing that opportunity to actually stop and reflect on how they're doing and actually do practices that will cultivate a higher or deeper awareness. That makes total sense. Let's talk a little bit, because we don't have a lot of time left. Let's talk a little bit about the wise elder. And you say a couple of things about it, that this idea that hopefully we have time to explore, but let's, I'm going to have you just define uh, what you mean by that, by the term. So in our culture, everyone becomes a senior when they turn 65, it's automatic. But becoming an elder is, is intentional. It's a stage rather than an age. So a woman who's 55 and um, in service with her own self-awareness and her heart open, and she may be considered an elder, whereas a man who's 85, who's bitter and resentful or filled with regret, is not an elder. So again, it's about the state of mind. So, so for me, you know, the practices in the book can have the potential to move us across the, the, the threshold into elderhood. But again, it takes inner work. So when we add wise to that, what does that mean? Does it mean smart? Does it mean, you know, full of information? Does it mean well-educated? I don't think so. I think it means self-aware, connected to what I call the three portals of awareness. Pure awareness from meditation or contemplative practice, silence, inner silence. Shadow awareness, a connection to the unconscious that enables us to be aware of shadow material, and mortality awareness, so that we're not in denial of death on the horizon. Without those three, I wouldn't use the term wise elder. So for me, it's kind of a precious term, and it, it infers a certain kind of development. Yeah, you're not going to get 
in, in that sense, it, biology is, I don't know if it's irrelevant, but certainly biology is not the focus. That elderhood is not going to happen simply because you age. That's correct. One of the things you write about elders is you say, as elders, I'm, I'm quoting you, as elders, it's vital to contemplate what we believe about the divine and to revise those beliefs if they no longer serve our development. So I'm curious, what kind of beliefs are you thinking of? Are you referring to that that no longer, what, what kind of beliefs serve our development at this stage and what kind of beliefs don't? You know, many people talk about completing emotional unfinished business, but I had never heard anyone speak about completing spiritual unfinished business. And it seems to me this is a key developmental task for us. So if we have never re-examined our beliefs about the divine or whatever we call that, whether we call it soul or spirit or higher self or God, doesn't matter to me. But if we have not really excavated our childhood beliefs and whatever other beliefs kind of piled up on top of that, then we are, you know, at the time of impending death without actually examining what we believe. So why does that matter? I had a, um, one client who was doing Buddhist practices for a long time. But when we really explored in the shadow, he was afraid of going to hell from his childhood Catholic training. And he was shocked that that was still there. So that was affecting him from the shadow in late life as he began to face his mortality. There was another woman um, who on her deathbed said to me, you know, I've been Catholic all my life. What if none of it is true? So that doubt had been repressed in her all her life until the very end when it finally found a voice. So I think it's a time to be contemplative about our connection to the divine. And then also our images, because those beliefs come with images. So we all have hidden in the shadow images of God or heaven or paradise. And what are those images? And do they really fit the wisdom that we've gathered over these long lives? Or are they archaic? You know, are they just like given to us from childhood? I mean, there's an assumption in what you're saying, and it's one that I share, that, and I'm going to put it more bluntly than you did, that people have got to outgrow that kind of parochialism, that kind of tribalism, and that if a person is, you know, if a person imagines that they weren't a good ex and because they weren't a good ex, they're going to go to, to hell or something. I mean, the whole notion of heaven and hell is something that I would say personally needs to be dropped and, and outgrown. But the assumption I'm making is that I know better than thousands of years of tradition, uh, whatever the religion is we're talking about, regarding heaven and hell. What's your sense of, so let, let me just tell you how I think about it, and then you can tell me, you can react to that rather than put you on the spot. Okay. I, I tend to think that the more contemplative practice one does, and certainly in my experience, the more contemplative practice I engage in, the less I associate or give credence to 
tribalist beliefs, the chosen people, uh, only Baptists go to heaven, you know, only Christians are saved, uh, the division of the, the true believer and the infidel, you know, all of that stuff, high caste, low caste, all of that stuff is, in my mind, just part of the shadow of, of humanity that constantly, you know, divides us up in, in, into these hierarchies. And that through contemplative practice, whether you're doing it from a Christian tradition or a Buddhist tradition or whatever it is, eventually those things will simply fall away. You won't even drop them. They'll simply fall away as being ludicrous. But there is an assumption that they are ludicrous. What's your sense of that? I mean, it's very chutzpah on my part. <laughs> yes, chutzpah <laughs> I don't see them as ludicrous. I see them as defenses. I think that our minds identify with dogma, whether it's religious or political dogma, for good reasons. They're psychological defenses. And like you say, they give us membership in a tribe, in a group. So we feel less alone and we feel morally right. And sometimes we feel we're on God's side. And there are stages of development in humanity where people need that, where people need that dogma or those tribal beliefs. I think we've seen some tragic consequences come from that, you know, throughout history. Actually, a lot of tragic consequences come from fundamentalist beliefs. But one of the Things I tried to do, really, really tried to do while writing the book, was not to tell people what to believe. The book is not based on beliefs. It's trying to open the door to experience. And so if you have a direct experience, you know, I've been meditating for a long time. So this week I had the experience that the whole universe was reflected in my body. And I realized I was holographic. And in that moment, I knew that I was not separate from anybody or anything or anywhere near or far. It was all within me and I was within it. So the, the intention of the book was to provide practices beyond belief, beyond concepts, beyond the mind, but direct experiences and when you have those experiences, even a glimpse of it for a few moments, you're changed. And those, some of those beliefs fall away and the old identities fall away and the old behaviors fall away. And that was the intention behind providing these practices. And, and it's very effective. I'm talking to the listener who might be considering getting the book and working the exercises. You really do accomplish what you you set out to accomplish. Mm. I mean my my sense is that there's still the assumption and and maybe this is because it's my assumption there's still the assumption that the feeling of this holographic nature of the universe and you know all of the, what you just described is more accurate, more true. Nothing is absolutely true as long as we're working with a human body and brain, but it's more accurate than the notion of a supernatural god outside of nature, separate from us, who creates us, who judges us, who rewards and punishes us. I mean, I, I'm looking for an elder who's gotten beyond all of that. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. I'm going to let it hang because I have one last question. We've been talking, you know, philosophy in a sense, but the book is 
not a philosophy book. I mean, you'd have a lot of philosophical concepts that you explore, but it's a much more practical book. And one of the things um, that you offer is what you call a legacy letter to the grandchildren. Mm -hmm. It sounded to me like the Jewish idea of an ethical will. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to do is, is bring this to a close by having you explain what a legacy letter to the grandchildren uh, is, and then, you know, encourage us all to start working on that. Wonderful. So um, I did not have children by choice, and then I married a man who did. So I'm now Grandma Connie. And the kids are young. They're um, a little young to understand what I was saying in that letter. And so I decided to write it down and leave it for them. I let their parents know that when the time was right, they could read it to the kids who, you know, who were the audience for the letter. And I really wanted to transmit to them what I see as the meaning and purpose of life and what I wish for them and their lives. I didn't deny the tremendous crises and problems that they're facing, given the climate and the politics that they're going to grow up in. But I just focused on what I thought would be a meaningful transmission to them that's very personal for me and what I've learned in this lifetime. So how might people get started doing that? Well, if you handwrite or use a computer, you can just sit down and say, dear so-and-so to your grandchild or, or grandchildren. And what is it that you really wish you could say that maybe you can't say? That maybe you can't say to your kids who are the parents of them? What's the full truth? Because nobody's going to read this unless you allow them to. So I would say, you know, release the editing and just write the full truth about your life and what you've learned and who you are. And, uh, and you know, don't let your ego edit it. And what you wish for them. And you could do this for your children, your adult children as well. What you wish for them and for their lives. And what you wish for the world. It's a powerful thing to do. I mean, I, I did this when my grandson was in utero. Mm. And I plan to do another one to him at a different stage of life. He's only, he's only five and a half. But this is a very, very powerful thing to do. And I encourage people to really consider doing this or even more than consider, I encourage people to actually take this up. It's a, a very powerful way of being uh, this wise elder. And it's the epilogue. It's the epilogue in the book. So it's easy to find. Right. Read the rest of the book first. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just go stand in the bookstore and read the end. <laughs> so our guest today, Connie Zweig, is the author of The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. A review of the book appears in Spirituality and Health magazine. Connie, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Rabbi Rami, love and gratitude to you. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. 
If you liked this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.